Well, as uh, many of you can relate, uh, maybe as parents, uh, my wife and I cherish these early stages of our children's lives. Uh, there are, of course, unique challenges that accompany them, as the bags under our eyes can tell us. Uh, the days are long, but the years are short, so we don't mind these tough times. But what would cause us the greatest grief is if there's no progress in our kids. If they don't grow taller or stronger, if they're way behind in developmental milestones, etc. We'd do anything, find the best pediatricians, research the best ways forward. This is the heart of every parent. And it's even more so the heart of our God the Father. It's true he loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, calls us as we are. Yet he in that same love does not want us to stay as we are. He wants to see growth in us. See, you can't have discipleship without conversion, but discipleship's not limited to conversion. Conversion is the first step of many. The Lord saves us and regenerates us so that we're not a brood of vipers, but then he demands that we be wise as serpents. It's true that God's kingdom's for babes, those converted as little children. At the same time, it's true that we must grow up. We must no longer be children. Even while we maintain that voracious appetite for the pure milk of the word like newborn babes, we must be full of age, a full age, and true solid food. We're going to see this desire of God, of our, uh, God our Father, and our need to grow reflected in today's passage, reflected in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And, and um, now, there's some challenging aspects to this passage I'm about to read, so I feel that we should discuss a few matters before I read it. I call your attention to the sermon context and the sermon title for help in understanding today's message. But first, here's the sermon context to bring us up to this point in the letter, in 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul has said his greetings, his thanksgiving, then he got right to work in pointing out the serious problem of division in the Corinthian church. It was bad. The congregation splintered as people formed cliques, they revered names of fallible men more than the matchless name of Jesus Christ. They tallied up baptisms, like some kind of statistic. They ranked ministers. They were wowed by eloquence and charisma more than the gospel. Such contentious ways displeased God. God uh, Paul had no choice but to rebuke the idolatry of wisdom and power. He had to expose the incompatibility between the ways of God and the ways of the world. And all believers must recognize that incompatibility. And Paul sets them straight by, I think, three reminders. Three reminders to show us that God opposes worldly wisdom. Reminder number one, God's plan to save through the preaching of Christ crucified is foolishness to the world. Reminder number two, the Corinthians themselves, those God chose and called, are living proof that the Lord does not favor the wise according to the flesh. 
Reminder number three, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles did not preach with excellence of speech or of wisdom when he first testified of God to them. All three reminders add up to this conclusion. The Lord wants all of us to place our faith in him, his greatness, not in ourselves, our power, our wisdom, our ability. God admits us into heaven. Those who admit that they're sick, sinners, foolish, base, and despised. And as I stated earlier, once we're in the kingdom, he wants us to grow up. For this purpose, Paul not only evangelizes, preaching Christ without a show of human wisdom, he also actively disciples. As he says in Colossians, he warns and teaches every man in all wisdom to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So we'll see what kind of teaching Paul has for us here. Next, I call your attention to the sermon title. I usually don't expect too much from these. At best, I hope they're attention grabbers. I hope they make you slap your knee, you know, make you laugh a little bit, or maybe they just make you groan. Um, but the title for the sermon today, Communication Breakdown, captures well two goals of Paul's argument. One is positive. He's breaking down for us a grand, complex idea into small bite-sized pieces as he answers the question, how does God communicate with us? That's what I mean by communication breakdown in a positive sense. But then one could also detect a negative connotation with the phrase communication breakdown. This time I'm not talking about breakdown as in teach a hard concept in simple terms. I'm talking about breakdown as if there's a failure in understanding. Now, in human experience, the blame for miscommunication quite often belongs to both parties, both the speaker and the listener. But between God and his saints, the problem always lies with us. We're going to show how that's the case. So with all that in mind, finally, let's read today's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4. So we're kind of moving on to the next chapter, but 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 4. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving and like mere men? For when one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Again, Paul's going to break down the idea of communication, and he's going to explain why there's a communication breakdown. So it behooves us to listen carefully, both when he says he speaks on behalf of the apostles, as you see in chapter 2, verse 6, 7, and 13, and also when he says he speaks, to, speaks himself to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 1. That, by the way, gives us some structure here as chapter 2, verse 6 to 13 form one unit, verses 14 to 16 another unit, and I think chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, a third. And putting together that outline and Paul's desire to grow, here's a spiritual fitness plan fit for spiritual beings, those who have received the Spirit of God. Well, a spiritual fitness step number one. Know well God's grace revealed through his Spirit. Know well God's grace revealed through through his spirit. That's chapter 2, verse 6 to 13. Step number 2, be mindful that we differ from those without God's spirit. Be mindful that we differ from those without God's spirit. That's verses 14 to 16. Step number three, rise above what's beneath the people of the Spirit. Rise above what's beneath the people of the Spirit. That's chapter three, verse one to four. First, to grow spiritually, know well God's grace revealed through his Spirit. I'm going to spend the most time here as there are some important doctrines covered in verses six to 13 break down the section further, we go from the hiddenness of God's wisdom in verses 6 to 9 to the disclosure of God's wisdom in verses 10 to 13. In verses 6 to 9, Paul emphasizes the hiddenness of God's wisdom is cherished among the mature, that is, those who are saved and growing in holiness. Meanwhile, those perishing dismiss the things of God as foolishness. That's because God's wisdom is not of this age. It's out of this world, while the unsaved are of this world. Even the best of the best in this world, the rulers of this age are unworthy. The rulers of this age do not have lasting value. As Isaiah 40 verse 23 tells us, the Lord brings princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. The rulers of this age also lack moral value. Here's the proof. See how they treated Christ as David prophesied in Psalm 2 and the early church prayed in Acts 4, truly against God's holy servant Jesus, whom he anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. 
That means both the religious authorities of Jerusalem and the civil authorities, authorities of Rome were guilty of crucifying Jesus. The Jews accused them, the one who is God-man. They accused them of blasphemy, saying that he's a mere man making himself to be God. Herod mocked the one he should have praised. Pilate didn't recognize truth, even as truth stood before him and spoke before him. In short, they did not see him as he really is, the Lord of glory. So whom they failed to recognize, what they failed to know, believers know and recognize. For a long time, God has kept in mystery, hidden the details of his plans for the elect. These are the things now freely given to us. Things our gracious Father has prepared for those who love him. You know, usually when we suspect someone's hiding something, we assume the worst, like, like an evil scheme here, selfish motive there. We never have to worry about that with our Heavenly Father. Right? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 says. Paul backs up this claim by citing from a mixture of Old Testament passages in 1 Corinthians 2.9. It's mainly from Isaiah 64, verse 4, which Carrie read earlier, with some allusion to other passages in the same book. It's worth rereading. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What God has prepared is good. It's better than the best surprise you've ever had. A few years ago, uh, one radio station in the U.S. took a poll of top 10 best surprises. Here's, here they are, and see how many you've experienced recently. Randomly finding money, uh, say in the street or your pocket. Surprise parties. Tax returns. Surprise visits from family and friends, engagements, pregnancies, puppies, snow days, canceled plans, push deadlines. I personally can't say I had too many of these recently, but no big deal. That's because what God has ordained before the ages for our glory is so much better right, than all these combined. Heaven's going to be us saying genuinely all the time, what a pleasant surprise. But even now through God's word, we get glimpses and sneak previews of the riches of his glory and the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's because God took the initiative. He disclosed his wisdom, which was once shrouded in mystery. Moving on from verses 6 to 9 to verses 10 to 13, we go from emphasis on the hiddenness of God's wisdom to its disclosure. We observe here now some grand doctrines of bibliology, which is the theology of the Bible, divine revelation, and verbal inspiration of the scriptures. But as we do, just we're kind of touching upon lofty subjects here, but keep in mind the simple truth. We know God's grace as it is revealed through his spirit. Know this well, the doctrine of divine revelation. Only the third person of the Trinity can take what's out of our reach 
and bring them to us. Even angelic messengers have their limits. But God the Spirit has all the rights and access to God the Father and God the Son, being same in essence yet different in persons. The Holy Spirit has all the divine attributes. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent everywhere at once. He can say to infinity and beyond, right? He goes even to the depths of God to query the deep things of God. He brings us God's precious thoughts to us and reveals their great sum to us. Lest this becomes too heady of a talk, Paul gives us a simple illustration. I'm going to reread verses 11 to 12. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Sometimes there's a talk in my home that goes something like this. We might make a call to pick up food, carry out delivery, Uber, whatever. On occasions like these, I usually say something like, I don't really care what we get. My wife, Iray, is different. She might say something like, I don't know what I want. Now, when I hear her say, I don't know what I want, I'm tempted to reply, slightly frustrated, well, if you don't know what you want, how would I know? I'm not a mind reader. Then maybe she'll say to me, well, we've been married for more than seven years now. You should know. Does this sound a bit fresh? I mean, <laughs> Okay, maybe next time we have this kind of conversation, I might borrow and adapt Paul's words. What husband knows the things of his wife except the spirit of the wife which is in her? Okay, don't do that. But the point here is this. If we can't even figure out our spouses closest to us, how are we going to figure out the Lord far beyond us, right? We need his spirit. Unless the Lord takes the initiative, sends his own spirit to reveal his thoughts, and plans. We cannot know anything about him. We can't figure out God there above with our paltry efforts here below. There are severe limits in our reason and contemplations. That's because in the end, no matter how smart you are, we're all just flesh and blood. We need God to unveil himself. We need the doctrine of divine revelation. In verse 13, we see another doctrine, the doctrine of verbal inspiration. I'm going to take that phrase apart for a moment. Inspiration has to do with the source, how God has breathed out his words. Verbal has to do with the product. How inspiration extends to every word of a particular text. We're talking about the Bible. Taken together, Paul gives us some insight into verbal inspiration here. And follow me to that last part of 1 Corinthians 2.13, after the second comma. Paul shows us how verbal inspiration works there. In my view, the best translation of this part of the verse, I call it 2.13b, is found in the New American Standard Bible. And... I know you have probably have an NKJV in front of you, but I'm going to read the NASB, New American Standard Bible. It says, combining, instead of comparing, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, the Holy Spirit 
taught the apostles like Paul by combining the spiritual thoughts of God with spiritual words of humans. So that's communication right there. Okay, so that's a lot we covered in chapter 2, verse 6 to 13, and I, I could really go deeper, but hopefully you kept your head above water with this point. Know well God's grace revealed through his spirit. And if we know God's grace well, the more we think about it, we see that it's an amazing grace. It's unmerited privilege. We have access to the supernatural that the natural man does not have and cannot have, cannot hope to have. And that leads to the second spiritual growth plan. Be mindful that we differ from those without God's spirit. And sometimes I realize the significance of a certain passage or certain passages when I imagine for a moment as if they're not there. Because we have verses 14 to 16 before we move on to chapter 3, we know that the Corinthians are not hopeless causes in Paul's eyes. Are they carnal, being immature, behaving like mere men? Yes, indeed, absolutely, no doubt about it. They're acting beneath their dignity, unworthy of their calling. We'll get to that in a moment, but know this well now, that even at their absolute worst as saints, they're far above the best among the unsaved. That's why with all their faults, Paul began the letter the way he did in chapter 1, verse 4 to 9. He's grateful for God's grace in their lives. He's confident that the Lord will see them to the end. As chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, even the brightest minds of today, no matter how high your IQ is, if unregenerate, unsaved, unredeemed, they cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They may have business or financial acumen, but they lack spiritual discernment. God's grace is foolishness to them. There's a world of difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. This is a good time in the sermon to pause and address the unbeliever. Hope you get to do that in your personal life, but please know that the unbeliever is perishing as a natural man. And don't misunderstand what it means to be spiritual. There is no true spirituality without the gospel. Being spiritual is not having some vague religious vibe as if there's a halo above your head or you're levitating above the ground. It's not talking in some arcane, ancient, pious language. Spiritual is not a status limited to the clergy, the super-Christians, or martyred missionaries. Being spiritual means you are born of the Spirit, born again so that you can enter heaven. Being spiritual means you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as the guarantee of inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Being spiritual means that the Spirit as helper abides with you forever, dwelling with you and being in you. In other words, being spiritual is not about you. It's not about your good works or moral efforts. It's all about God's supernatural grace and divine power, mercifully granted to natural and weak humans. To receive this grace, first you must admit your sinfulness your need for grace. 
The Bible says that we broke God's law with our deceit, stealing, coveting, idolatry, taking the Lord's name in vain, committing adultery and murder in our hearts. This is why by nature all of us are children of wrath. We're deserving of hell, separation from the Holy Creator for eternity. Yet that's not the end. The same Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment leads us out of depths of despair to ascend to Calvary. The Spirit, in other words, points to Jesus. While we're sinners corrupted by our sin nature, Jesus was different than us. He, God's Son, was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life. The Spirit anointed him to preach the gospel. He was given the Spirit without measure. And through that same Spirit, Christ offered himself without spot, shed his own blood, to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. At the cross, Jesus suffered and died in our place. He paid a terrible penalty of our faults and errors that we should pay. And the Spirit was not done at the crucifixion. He leads us to the empty tomb. That Sunday, there was a great declaration of Jesus as God's Son with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. After proving himself to be alive, Christ ascended to heaven Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And there's a call to respond to this message. Repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness. Trust in Jesus, turn to him for eternal life and the spirit-filled life. You cannot earn this, it must be received as a gift. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Humbly receiving salvation as a gift is what it takes to be spiritual. So surrender. Offer yourselves to the Lord to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There are so many spiritual blessings for the spiritual person. Through the Spirit, we're assured of our adoption as God's children. Through the Spirit, we're helped in our prayers to the Father. So let's be grateful for the believers here and be mindful that we differ from those without God's Spirit. Now back in today's passage in 1 Corinthians 2, we find even more blessings. As verse 15 says, spiritual people possess God-given authority. We judge all things and yet we're judged by no one, it says. We have special insight and access to the deep things of God. That makes us qualified to judge simpler matters. That is, if we can uh, know the deep things of God through the Spirit, surely we can judge lesser things of this world. And you're going to see this kind of argument when you get to chapter 6. He'll remind them of this privilege, our destiny to stand as judges over the world, even over angels. How much more the things pertaining to this life? Why should Why would they bring church disputes before unbelievers? Again, more on that later. Back to chapter 2, verse 16. Paul augments the argument that we differ from those without God's spirit. He brings in another citation from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 13. Again, apart 
from grace, all of humanity's shut off from knowing God and his ways? Right after the quote, Paul eagerly and joyfully interjects, we have the mind of Christ. Again, what an amazing grace to have God communicate with us this way. So with all that said from chapter 2, verse 6 to 16, you'd think that spiritual people would have no problems. The Corinthians, and by extension, all saints everywhere in every age are living each day by the Spirit, working together in harmony and unity. Everything's great. Well, no. Paul needs to challenge them, and he needs to challenge us. And moving on to chapter 3, we see the third step of our spiritual growth, Rise above what's beneath the people of the Spirit. Uh, We've come full circle now, and I'm going to turn back a few pages. Feel free to follow along and read chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. And you hopefully can see the circle sort of being closed here in a loop. Chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. Now I plead with you, brethren, this is how Paul began the letter, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So a lot has been said between then and now, and a lot is coming when we look at the rest of the letter, what's clear is that the problem of disunity in Corinth right, is not at the fault with the message. The fault is not with the messenger. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is not the messenger Paul. It's certainly not the fault of God the Father, his Son, or his Spirit. Paul's telling the Corinthians Hey, brethren, your problem is a you problem. The reason there are resentments, conflicts, rips, the ruckus of, I belong to this party. Paul or Apollos, that's my guy. It all comes down to this. You're carnal. And I want to stress again that being carnal is still worlds apart from being natural. Again, we have to have one finger on chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, while we put the finger on the problem in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. But still, carnal is far from ideal. To be carnal is to act immature. It's like a 40-year-old acting like a 4-year-old. There's a huge difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. The Corinthians are behaving like mere men at a level beneath the people of the Spirit. Sure, they had the Spirit, but they sure acted as if they didn't have the Spirit, being sensual and causing divisions. They need God's discipline. They must rise above all this. Again, we're going to see a lot of that in the rest of the letter. But we too must Rise, right? Rise above, rise above and not be beneath our dignity here. We have to admit that the problem of carnality is also with us. But the solution comes from God himself. 
Divided bodies come from divided hearts. This is why we lift up these divided hearts of ours and surrender to our merciful God. Ask the Spirit to lead us and fill us. And so, with that in mind, let's make the final song our prayer. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we find ourselves just humbling ourselves before you. Remind us of our times when we uh, those seasons when we first sought you, how we humbled ourselves to be saved. Lord, but the principle is the same even as we grow. We need the same humility. We need to even grow in our humility. Lord, help us to see where we are. Lord, may we search within our hearts. We ask that you search us and reveal things that are displeasing to you. And not just in our individual walks, but as we gather together in this corporate body, may we encourage each other. May we appreciate what great grace you have shown us through sending your spirit to abide with us, revealing your word, giving us your word so that we can understand. And understanding these privileges and gifts help us to be grateful, help us to live worthy of our calling. We Thank you. We thank you for your grace. We pray that you'll be glorified in our lives and in our gatherings. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.